Good morning, church. So good to be with you again on this Sunday. Hope you're all doing well and staying safe and healthy. And it's good to just be together and worship God together as a church family and uh, be together even if it is online. Just a reminder, we have begun meeting uh, inside in the church building. We began that a couple of weeks ago. Most of the summer we've been meeting outside, but we started meeting inside just a couple of weeks ago. And we hope that at some point you'll, you'll come join us, but we know that not everybody is quite comfortable just yet, but hopefully as things move forward and progress, we hope that uh, you'll come join us again and, and, and be together in person and worship together in person. But for the time being, we are certainly glad that you are joining us online. And whether it's in person or online, we're just glad to be able to get together and worship together and, and uh, hopefully become closer together and, and grow in our relationship with God uh, as well. So it's a good thing, even if it is online, to be able to meet together and worship together. I heard a story about a guy who walked into a doctor's office to have a mole removed from his chin, and pretty quickly he met the nurse who was going to assist him. And without wasting any time, she said to him, Quick, down the hall, first door on your left, strip down to your boxers, Doc will be with you in just a second. And he said, Well, hold on, I'm just here to get a mole removed from my chin. And she didn't even let the sentence get out before she said, just quick, down the hall, first door on your left, strip down your boxers, Doc will be with you in a second. He's like, okay, yes, ma'am. So he starts to walk down the hall and finds the door on the left and he opens up the door and, and behind the door in the room is, is another guy standing there in his boxers. And the guy who walks in says to the guy, he's kind of surprised to see him in there, and he says to the guy in the boxers, he said, man, that... That nurse out there is really, really mean. And the guy standing there in the boxer says to him, yeah, tell me about it. I'm just the UPS driver. <laughs> there are some people who are quick and to the point and they don't mince words. And they're just not going to stop for anything and they're going to get right to the point. And I thought about that nurse because she's one of those people. I thought about that nurse as I think about how James has been speaking to us as we've been journeying through the book of James and really examining and diving into what it looks like and what it means to have a faith that works in the real world. And if you've learned anything by now as we're several weeks into the book of James into our study, you've probably learned that James is quick and to the point and he doesn't mince words. And that's particularly true when it comes to the section that we're going to be looking at today. So we're going to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. If you were with us last week online, you know that it was kind of a review uh, lesson. I was actually out of town uh, last Sunday, had a good trip, but it's good to be back with you. And so we're going to pick back up in our James series where we left off a couple of weeks ago in James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Here's what James writes. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So when James writes this, and again, he's writing this to believers. I've mentioned that a couple of times in this series. 
But when James writes this, it's on the heels of him having just told them in James chapter 4, verse 7, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago, to submit themselves again to God, that they needed to submit themselves, their hearts, their lives again to God. And in this particular section of James, he's calling them to specifically submit their future to God. He's talking about a submission to God overall, but in this particular section, he's talking about them submitting their future to God because you can't really fully and completely submit yourself to God without also submitting your future to God. And any faith that works in the real world has to involve submitting one's future to God. Why? Because oftentimes it's a preoccupation with the future that can distract me from being the kind of person I need to be and doing the kind of things I need to do in the present moment. And then that impacts my future later on. So the question is, as we kind of look at at our text today and walk through it just a little bit, what does it look like to submit your future to God? Well, I think in this little section of James, he tells us some distinguishing characteristics of what that looks like. And, And submitting our future to God, I think James gives us three things that I see in this passage. And the first is this, it involves realizing that this life is temporary. Realizing that this life is temporary, as one person said, life is short and death is, sure, is certain. The mortality rate has hung at a solid 100% as long as we have been on this earth. James says in verses 13 and 14, listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, James says? It's just a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James is basically reminding them that, hey, listen, guys, this is a mist forecast. You're a fog. You're a vapor. And again, James is is writing this to believers here. So understand the context. He's writing this to believers here. And some of them are merchants. Some of them are, are employers. They have people working for them. And you've got to remember, these are people who have recently been driven out of Jerusalem, and now they've spread out into all parts of the known Roman Empire. And some of them are actually beginning to do quite well. They're making big plans even, and God inspires James to remind them of the true context of their lives. They're they're vapor. They're mist. It's only just a short while that we're going to be on this earth in the grand scheme of things. You've heard of retirement planning. Well, James wants them to think of themselves in terms of expirement planning. He wants them to remember that, that they have an expiration date. And there's something to be said for us living our lives with a consciousness that, that you have an expiration date, that you're not going to live forever, that one time, at, one, at some point, your time on this earth is going to come to an end. I hope it's not soon, but for all of us that day, will come. It's an interesting device that I saw that I think is a great example of, of what it means to, to be in the mode of retire, or excuse me, expirement planning. It's a wristwatch called the ticker, T-I-K-K-E-R. And, and while the watch does tell time, that's not really its primary feature. Its primary feature is that it's a countdown clock for your life. And so what you do is you enter in, they've got software that is associated with the watch. And so you you put in all of your, uh, your, your family's health history and your own health history, and you put it into the software and the software on the watch converts all of that information into what they call your death score, 
which is basically how much time you have left on this earth. And it converts it into days and minutes and seconds, years and months even. Just a friendly reminder on your wrist that your life is slipping away. Isn't that encouraging? Aren't you glad you, you joined us for, for worship today? But the makers of the ticker, the, the, the wristwatch, actually, actually argue that their device is going to help you make better decisions because you're daily reminded that you have an expiration date, that you're not going to live forever. And that's not too far removed from the wisdom of Scripture. You know, we count our years at each birthday. Some of us try not to count our years at each birthday the older we get, but the reality is they're, they're there. And so we count our years at each birthday, but, but really Scripture indicates that I'd be better off numbering my days. The Bible says in Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There is wisdom for daily living. In other words, what the psalmist has said, there's, there's wisdom for daily living that comes from me remembering that my days are numbered, that, that life is, is short, it's temporary. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter seven says that when it comes to wisdom for daily living, I'm better off finding it in a house of mourning than I am in a house of feasting. He goes on to say, for death is the destiny of everyone and those of us who are living should take this to heart. In other words, you're, you're better off finding wisdom for daily living at, at a funeral at a, or at a funeral visitation than you are at a party or a wedding reception. Why? Because at a funeral or at a funeral visitation, most everyone has a dose of perspective. Most everyone has a real context for how temporary life is. I mean, they're experiencing it in that moment that that loved one is, it was with them the day before and now they're gone. And, and living with that sense that we all have an expiration date has practical ramifications for our lives. I mean, just, just think about this. Think about how churches and, and how individuals, how people in our country respond in the wake of huge tragedies or natural disasters or, or even in light of what we just read in, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Think about it more on a personal or individual level, how people's attitudes and perspectives are after a funeral or in the midst of a funeral. And so you take those times and, and have you ever noticed just how people respond in the days and weeks after those times of a funeral or a natural disaster of a, a huge tragedy? People don't fight over things nearly as much. They reconcile, they, they apologize, they assess where they are in relationship with God. They serve one another. What are they doing? They're, they're living more wisely by a biblical definition of wisdom, whether they realize it or not, because they have a fresh reminder that their days are numbered, that life is temporary. They're not gonna live forever and they don't have all the time in the world. They're a fog, they're a vapor, they're a mist. And I think that's actually an atmosphere that nurtures better decision-making in our lives. People are waking up in those moments and in those times to experiment planning, if only for a season. Sometimes we often go back into those times, but, but if only for a season, we're waking up to the reality that life is temporary. But you know, tragedy isn't the only thing that can produce this, and thank God for that, because scripture can also produce it in us. You don't always need to have your heart broken to wake up to the reality of experiment planning. You can listen to what God has to say about it. And God's heart is not to depress us, but rather it's to impress on us the real context in which I'm living, that it's temporary. 
that, that I'm not going to last forever. Life is fragile and tomorrow is not to be taken for granted because tomorrow is not promised. And that informs how we live in the present moment. And so submitting my future to God involves just coming to grips with the reality. And I know sometimes it's, it's easier said, I mean, we know that, but it's easier said than done to really come to grips with that reality that life is temporary, that we're not promised tomorrow and we're certainly not going to live forever in this life. And secondly, I think it also involves, moving forward, not only is life temporary, but it involves submitting my future to God, involves embracing the reality that God is sovereign. It involves embracing the reality that God is sovereign, that he's in control. James says in verses 16 and 17, instead, you ought to say, instead of, instead of being kind of arrogant about what's going to happen tomorrow and what we're going to do tomorrow, because that's basically what James is saying. When we presume about what's going to happen tomorrow, there's an arrogance in that. And so instead of doing that, James says, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, listen, James isn't condemning the idea of planning for the future. I mean, scripture is, 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 I think, paints a very clear picture that it's, it's, it's good to plan for the future. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5 is a great example of this. The plans of the diligent, the, the writer of Proverbs says, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. And so there's a place for planning. Scripture doesn't um, vilify or condemn planning. But the reason I tell you this is because sometimes people will take this scripture, this passage here in James and scriptures elsewhere that talk about, you know, this idea of, of the fragility of life and the temporariness of, of life. And they'll call people to reject ideas like insurance policies or retirement planning or just any kind of planning for the future in general. But that's not what scripture is saying. I also think it's helpful if you think about it to kind of balance that, that with the fact that all the way back in the Old Testament, it wasn't raining when Noah was building the flood, right? So if you're going to talk about the lack of planning, it wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. And so there's a place for planning and, and walking out a, a plan ahead of time. God's not against planning for tomorrow. What he is against is me having a certainty over tomorrow that trumps an acknowledgement of his sovereignty over tomorrow. He's not against me making plans He's against me making plans without acknowledging his sovereignty or my finiteness. Have you ever noticed that there's a big if in the middle of life? L-I-F-E. There's a big if in the middle of life. We do well to remember that. I think it'll better prepare you to embrace life if you can just remember there's a big if in the middle of life. You, you won't be so easily thrown off and off-ended. You know people who are, who are easily off-ended and, and, and thrown off when they're just, there's just the slightest difficulty or adjustment or course change in their life. And the reason they're so easily off-ended and thrown off is because they easily forget that there's a big if in the middle of life. There aren't a lot of guarantees we don't have control. We like to think we have control over a lot of things. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day and we were just talking about how we, we, we like to have control in our lives and yet the older I get, the more I realize I have control over far less than what I actually think I do. And so when there are twists and turns in the plot, you know, when, when we forget how out of control we are and we forget how, many, or how few guarantees there, there are, it, it's easy for life to just be a wreck. Right? Instead of remembering a fundamental reality that there's a big if 
in the middle of life. And that's why it's so important for us to remember that God is sovereign. Even though there's big ifs, there's a big if in the middle of life, God is sovereign and he's in control. Psalm 135 verse six says, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth. Maybe this is why if God wills or if the Lord wills should, should really just be a regular part of our vocabulary. And I don't mean that in, in, in some formulaic saying, I'm not saying that, but, but in a deeply embedded conviction that we really truly believe that it's not about what we wanna do or what we think we're gonna do, but I'll do this, but if it's, if, if it's the Lord's will and I'll walk this out, but, but it's only if God permits it, if only if, it's, if that's where God is leading me to. And I, I know we're in James, but I wanna bring up the, the Apostle Paul as an, as an example of this. It's interesting to note how often the Apostle Paul, when talking about his plans, would, would bring in this thinking of if the Lord wills or if God permits. I'll just give you a couple examples of this. In Acts chapter 18, Luke reports a conversation between Paul and the elders of the church in Ephesus. And Luke writes, but as he, Paul, left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And then he set sail from Ephesus. Paul closes out his first letter to the church in Corinth by saying, I do not want, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. And he wrote to the Roman believers in Romans chapter one saying, I pray now that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Now I say those things, but, but understand that thinking didn't always come easily for Paul. In fact, in many ways, Paul learned to come about this language the hard way. Early on in his ministry, he's trying to travel and, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in our uh, Going Viral, actually it's been a couple of months ago in our Going Viral series. But in Acts chapter 16, Paul keeps trying to get into Asia to preach the gospel. That's where he wants to go. He wants to get into Asia to preach the gospel there. God's commissioned him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and, and that's where he wants to go. And for 300 miles, moving from southeast to northwest on the map, Paul keeps trying to get into Asia and to cross the border into Asia. And all that Luke says when he tells the story is that the spirit of Jesus wouldn't let Paul cross over into Asia. Now, Paul doesn't know it's the Spirit of God that's not letting him get into Asia, but he just knows he can't get into Asia. By the way, I think it's also ought to be a little bit of a dose of perspective to know that not even Paul, an apostle, has a red line to God. He, he, he's not always clued in on, on what God is exactly calling him to do. He's trying to get into Asia, and, and the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is resisting him. And so he's trying to get into the border of Asia. He can't get in. He doesn't know it's the Holy Spirit who's resisting him. All he knows is he's trying to get into Asia, and, and he can't get into Asia. He can't cross the border. Finally, he winds up in Troas. He's wiped out. He's exhausted. But in Troas, he meets a physician, Luke, who would come in handy over the next decade or so because Luke was, or Paul was going to go through a lot of suffering in his life from that point forward. But even more than that, he has, Paul has a vision in Troas. And this vision says to him, I want you to go down to Philippi in Macedonia and preach the gospel there. Now, Philippi is not in Asia, but Paul goes to Philippi anyway. Eventually, a church gets planted there in Philippi because Paul goes down and preaches the gospel there, and people respond to the gospel. And of all things, the Philippian church winds up becoming the church with the money and the resources to help fund, later fund, Paul's trip into, guess where? Asia. It's the church in Philippi who helps fund Paul's trip later 
into Asia so that Paul could go deeper into Asia than perhaps he had ever planned. And so Paul went further and deeper with the gospel by going through Philippi than he ever would have had he not gone there. What's the point? The point is Philippi wasn't even on Paul's radar. It was not in his plans at the time. He's trying to go into Asia, but God took him the circular route through Philippi to eventually get into Asia so he could go deeper and further with the gospel there. There are times when you can't trace God's hand. And you just throw up your hands and say, God, I, I, I don't know what you're doing. I, I, can't, I can't see where you're going with this, but you got to trust his heart. You may not be able to trace his hand, but you have to trust his heart. He is sovereign and he is love. And Paul learned very early on the value of coming to that reality if it is the Lord's will. You know, some of us struggle with being too concerned or too certain, excuse me, some of us struggle with being too certain about tomorrow. Others of us struggle with being completely tyrannized and concerned and paralyzed over tomorrow and the uncertainties that are, that are so likely to accompany it. But either way, when we live too much in the future, it makes us unable to fully live in the present moment, being right where we are, fully engaged with the challenges of the day, fully celebrating the good things of the day, even fully mourning the sad and bad things of the day and, and, and acknowledging that God is sovereign over tomorrow, get this, will actually free you up to be who you need to be and where you need to be today. And that really leads me to a third distinguishing mark that James gives us for what it means to submit our future to God. And it's this, it means making it a priority to do what's right now making it a priority to do what's right now. You see, God doesn't just want to be acknowledged as sovereign over tomorrow. He wants to be acknowledged as sovereign over today as well. So James goes on to say in verse 17, so then, if you know the good you ought to do and don't do it, you sin. Now, when James says, so then, he's connecting what he's just said with what he's about to say. In other words, in light of me not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow, and in fact, in light of me not even knowing if I'm going to be here tomorrow, and in light of the sovereignty of God and me being accountable to him, anyone who knows the good they ought to do in the present moment, and yet they don't do it, that's sin. No ifs, ands, or buts. Talk, talk about not mincing words. James is pretty clear and to the point here. If you know the good you ought to do, in light of me not knowing what tomorrow holds, in light of the sovereignty of God, that he's in control, that he's over it all, the good that I ought to do today, if I know it and I don't do it, that's sin. Now, James is, is going to use a specific example here, and he's, he's going somewhere with this. So let's read on into James chapter 5. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming on you. Strong words. Your wealth has rotted and moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who, who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves on the day, in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing 
you. Well, that was probably the last time James was ever asked to speak at that church again, right? But why is he so worked up here? Well, again, some of the believers that he's writing to are, are business owners and employers, and apparently they're, they're not paying their employees or their servants for work that they've already done. They're, they're hoarding the money for themselves. Maybe they're saying, well, I'll get to that later. I'll, I'll, I'll pay them later. And in the meantime, I've got some business that I got to go to and attend to in this city over there. I got big plans for making money over there and I need some capital to take with me. And so I'll just, I'll take care of them later. I'll pay them later. But what's happening though, is that because the workers aren't being paid, they're not able to pay their own obligations. And when you couldn't pay your own obligations in the first century, or you had debt in the first century, guess what they did with you? Oftentimes they threw you into prison or they sold you as a slave. You had to sell yourself as a slave into slavery. Those were your options, not, not very good options. And oftentimes that would rip apart families, put children in jeopardy. And that's not even to mention what would happen to that person in, those, in, in prison or in those, uh, those slave-like situations. And James says to the business owners and the employees, look, the Lord is holding you accountable. You're living in indulgence and, and luxury on the funds that you owe those who work for you and God's going to hold you accountable, personally responsible for their suffering. James even uses the word murder. That's a strong word. And it's really quite chilling when he says this, the wages you failed to pay the workers are crying out against you. They're crying out against you. Kind of a sobering thought when you think about it, that when I don't do the right thing specifically here, James is talking about with my money, my money testifies against me. There's the old phrase, money talks, right? James says, oh yeah, money talks. And James in essence says, you think you're storing up money through neglecting to pay your workers when you're really just storing up judgment. You think you're storing up money to execute your plans tomorrow, but you're not doing the right thing today. And you owe some people today. And so do the right thing today. You, you can't always control what's gonna happen tomorrow, but, but what's the right thing to do today? Best piece of advice I've ever gotten is what's the next right thing to do? And that's basically what James is saying. Do the right, you know the good thing you ought to do today. So do it. But they knew the right thing they ought to do in the present moment. And yet they weren't doing it. And listen, I, I know there are times when we don't know what the right thing to do is. I, I, I get that. There, there are times in my life where I, I don't know what the next right thing to do is. And I understand that. And sometimes it takes time to discern that. But what James is talking about is all the times when we do know the good. We do know the right thing we ought to do in the present moment. And yet we procrastinate. You know, my wife and I tell our kids all the time, slow obedience is no obedience. They've heard that enough to, to, it's embrazened in their brains, right? Slow obedience is no obedience. And delayed obedience is just a disobedience in disguise. That's all it is. We, we, can, we can couch it, we can pretty it up, but, but delayed obedience is just disobedience in disguise. And when I think about that, I just think about this question. Why is it that my desires can't wait? but God's can. Why is it that my will can't be put on hold, but God's can? And when it comes to doing the best thing or the right thing, far too many of us use the word someday 
far too often. And it would do us good to remember that last time I checked, Sunday is not a day of the week. Sunday is not a day of the week, but all too often doing the right thing is held hostage to when and then thinking. Well, I'll do that when, you know, when I get around to it. I've got this to take care of. and, And so when I get that taken care of, then I'll do that. But there comes a time when if you know the right thing to do in the present moment, it's time to do it. No putting it off. No saying, well, I got to take care of it. If you know the right thing to do, the time to do it is now. And that's what James, at least part of what he's saying. And that's part of a faith that works in the real world. But the only way that you're empowered to really turn it loose and to just do it is submitting is by submitting yourself and your future to God. It's in realizing God I recognize, I know it's hard for me to wrap my mind around sometimes, but I acknowledge the reality that this life is temporary, that that I'm not gonna be here forever. And yet at the same time, you are sovereign and you are in control and there's a priority of doing the right thing right now because when and then isn't Lord of your life. Jesus is. You know, while life is short and temporary, here's the reality. Eternity is forever. And since we're not promised tomorrow, there's no better time than the present, than right now, today, to humble ourselves before God and to embrace his sovereignty and to make it a priority to do the right thing right now. So that if tomorrow never comes, you and I will be found ready and faithful.